every month or year, I, I read less and less in the sports science literature and more and more in other things like um, economics, behavioral economics, um, environmental biology, where I think that like some of the stats are brilliant. And I think some of that stuff um, in, in doing that, you know, at the end of the day, it's not about the topic. It's about trying to figure out how people think. You're listening to Sports Tech Feed, the global sports technology podcast. Hello and welcome to Sports Tech Feed, the global sports technology podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Loams. It's great to have you join us this week. On today's show, we have Patrick Ward, the Director of Research and Development for the Seattle Seahawks. Patrick currently works on research and development in professional sports with an emphasis on data analysis in American football. Previously, Patrick was a sports scientist within the Nike Sports Research Lab. He also co-founded Optium Sports Performance in Tempe, Arizona, a strength and conditioning facility where he trained high school, collegiate and professional athletes. Patrick's been invited to present research and speak at conferences, including MIT Sloan Analytics Conference, Cascadia Symposium of Statistics and Sports, World Congress of Science and Football, and the NSCA National Conference. His research interests include training and competition analysis as they apply to athlete health, injury, and performance across a variety of sports. Patrick has a PhD in sports science from Liverpool John Moores University and is a National Strength and Conditioning Association Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist. As we hear early on, Patrick actually had a fairly unique path into the world of data analysis uh, within sports, starting out in jazz guitar. So really that's a thread that kind of weaves its way through this is basically about creativity to data insights um, within sports and actually looking beyond sports and really questioning the acceptor wisdom, the sacred cows, whatever you want to call it within sports analysis. So Fantastic chat coming up with Patrick. Uh, if you'd like to look at the show notes, that's sportstechfeed.com. You can also contact me, uh, Thomas Loams, on LinkedIn, also thomas at sportstechworldseries.com. If you've got any other questions, if you want to continue the conversation, that's something that we really enjoy is when our listeners reach out and actually uh, kind of continue the conversation um, from the show with our guests, um, with myself. So if that is something that you're working in sports and this um, hits a nerve or, or uh, highlights an area of interest, then always willing to to discuss more. And if you want to stay up to date with all our latest episodes, then subscribe on your favorite uh, platform, whether that's Apple Podcasts, or if you're listening on Spotify, then do that as well. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter on sportstechworldseries.com. Great little nuggets of information from the industry, some deeper dives in there, and that week's podcast. So that's a perfect way. It'll hit your inbox on a Thursday perfect way to kind of wrap up what's happening in the industry that week. Uh, not overly onerous. I know how um, getting bombarded by a million emails every day is, is a bit of a task. And so we've kept it weekly so you can stay informed and then take those insights and implement them in your day-to-day. That's enough from me for the intro. Now handing over to Patrick Ward, Director of Research and Development at the Seattle Seahawks. <laughs> Patrick Ward, Director of Research and Development at the Seattle Seahawks. Welcome to Sports Tech Feed. Great to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a, a pleasure to be on the podcast and hopefully someone will find it interesting. <laughs> no doubt. I think everyone's going to find it interesting. Um, so, firing off into it, can you share a little bit about your career journey so far and also your current role at the Seahawks? Yeah, um, I guess... My journey is a bit of an unconventional unconventional one, I suppose, but maybe not so unconventional when you look at 
the fact that most 18 year olds don't know what they want to do. I started out uh, studying jazz guitar um, music at uh, Berkeley College of Music. I wanted to be a jazz guitarist and I uh, graduated uh, with a bachelor's degree in music performance, moved to New York City and, uh, and realized that you could only play so many $20 gigs before you have to pay very expensive rent. So um, I was always into working out. I played high school sport. I played baseball. I was into lifting a lot. And uh, so that kind of got me into this idea that maybe I could um, change and pivot and, and do something in the exercise field. So I went back to school. I studied for a master's degree in exercise science, um, <clears throat> moved from New York City to Phoenix, opened up my own facility where we mainly did um, training performance stuff for uh, high-level athletes. At the time, mostly it was like PGA golfers, pro vol beach volleyball players, soccer players, uh, high school baseball, high school football, those kinds of things. And then um, that kind of six years there kind of took me on a journey to Nike uh, to, uh, to take up a job in the sports research lab there, uh, which is where I met um, Barry Drust and, and Aaron Coots, who at the time were research consultants to the lab, and they convinced me to do a PhD. Um, so, I did, you know, so I started that, and uh, at the time I was there, I was working on a group. In, in a group, there was about five of us, and our whole thing was research on elite athletes. So uh, we'd mainly do, like, team sport, and we'd travel around. We, we had collected all this data on the Women's Professional Soccer League, things like that. And uh, one day the Seahawks called in and said, oh, would you, you know, would you mind driving up the road? It's about a three-hour drive from Nike to, to, um, up to Seattle. Driving up the road and, and maybe trying your, your uh, jumps test protocol on our athletes and, and what can you tell us from that. So we did that and um, that took me up the road to Seattle. And, um, you know, after we, we kind of did those tests, they said, oh, you know, what if you kind of did this for us all full time? So I was like, oh, that, yeah, that sounds kind of interesting and cool. So uh, I took that job as a sports science analyst, and uh, I did that for two years there. I was always really interested in, like, draft analysis, things like that. So I started doing yep. some of that along the way, and that kind of led me into my current role, which is research and development. And so um, there's three of us on staff, and we handle all of our uh, – all, all of the kind of research projects – within football operations. So everything from the sports science side of things around player, you know, health and, and performance to, um, uh, you know, team-based stuff around, around opposition analysis and then even down into like draft analysis and trades and things like that. <laughs> yeah. And is that mainly, is that self-directed in the sense of you go find problems um, and kind of present them to the, to the coaching staff? Um, there, or is it they come to you with specific problems in in terms of of, of finding the best use um, for kind of it, your team? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. It's a it's a little bit of both. I think I think whenever you're in industry um, and then doing applied science, you know, if we think about very basic science, like someone who traditionally what you think of when you think of science, like you know, an academic who works in a lab. A lot of times that's very self-directed. You sort of sit there in your office and ponder phenomenon about the world as you stare out yeah. the window and then you, you know, conjure up some sort of study and try and get grant money to conduct it. Um, <clears throat> when you work in industry, when you work in an applied setting, 
Uh, it is a little bit different, and it's it's a little bit of both, actually. Um, there's things that you're curious about, phenomenon that you're curious about within the sport, or maybe even theories or um, you know sacred cows that people hold on to that they believe are like super important, yeah. and you're like, geez, I don't I don't know if that's really what they think it is, and, and you want to explore those things and maybe provide them information about that. Um, but there's also this piece of them coming to you with like, hey, it'd be great if, you know, we, we knew this or something. And that was really one of the things that when I started as sports science analyst there, um, I just went to the medical staff. I went to the strength staff and, and uh, the nutrition staff. And I said, you know, what's like one or two or three things that you, you felt like if, oh, if I just knew this about the players, I'd be able to, to make a better decision or do my job better or something or, or make my job easier. Sometimes it's not even about doing your job better. It's about making your job easier. And so I asked them to think about those things. And uh, because I was like, well, you know, if you believe that it's important, we can we can find a way to collect it and study it and, and figure out how important it is. And if it is really important, let's figure out a way to a process around tracking it because it's something that you, you know, you think is valuable and it's something that's important. We should, then that means we should care about it. So we should track it and we should see if it's getting better or see if it's getting worse and figure out the most efficacious ways to make that improve. So it's always a little give and a take when you're in the applied setting. Um, you know, you're going to have the moments of your own creativity, but you're also going to have the, the questions that come from above and, um, hopefully the things and the, the kind of key learnings that you have in studying either of those, they help each other to yeah. develop knowledge about the sport. And I, I guess it's with those sacred cows, the coaches aren't going to come to you and say, we've always believed this, please prove us wrong. Well, um, so that's, yeah. as I said, the self-directed side, but at the same time. They're never going to say, please prove it wrong. Um, I mean, like all sacred cows, they'll get, there'll be things that are stated as fact, right? Mm. And... Um, and it, it's funny because like in science, right, if we were having a scientific discussion or discourse or disagreement or dialogue, if you stated something as fact, the burden on is on you to prove it to me, yeah. not on me to prove it to you, right? Um, they state it as fact because it's something that's been like codified in the language of the sport and passed down and antiquated and this is how we've always done it. Um, but that doesn't necessarily make it right. Um, but they're not scientific minded, so they don't think about how they could falsify it or how they could study to figure out if it, it is true. So we kind of um, find ways to exploit those things and, and show them. And sometimes I think sometimes they're like, well, you know, wow, that's really interesting. I, I guess I never thought that. Um, and sometimes they're like, no, like, uh, I just can't believe it. <laughs> and it's, it's hard yeah. for them to give it up. And, and I think sometimes you get big wins, though, when there are sacred cows that you can show that there's data to support it. Like, you know, not, not everything in science is about finding out stuff that nobody knew about. Sometimes it's about confirming things that people already knew. And then maybe also taking it a step further to understand the magnitude of the things that affect that thing that people already knew. Hey, did you know that what you always say about this incident is actually true? And these are the four things that have the largest bearing on that. So we can influence this thing by, by toggling up or down one of those four things. Yeah, which comes to 
I guess my next question about data sources um, or data. I'm going to be switched between data and data. So yeah, very Australian. Australian yeah, but lived in lived in London. Now lives in, in yeah. the US. Is it, is it data in London as well? Do they say? It? Uh, I feel like uh, it's like data. Yeah, data. It's, yeah, it's, that's yeah, it. yeah. There's an extra T in the middle there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but data, data, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so as you said there, they're proving something and then it's actually that these four four sources of, of data or whatever we're tracking, that's that's the things that indicate um, uh, what you knew or what you, you kind of um, assumed there. Where do you, where do you source data to build and inform your work? Um, we, we have a, a number of data sources. Um, some of them from football side, you know, obviously come from the league, so stuff about the game, events of the game. Um, certainly there's wearable tracking in the game that the, the league provides. So, um, you know, so there's, there's that stuff. There's a uh, third-party company that will pay to do some manual coding of the games, um, of events in the games and things like that, uh, which can certainly help provide context around a game that is very, very... Um, difficult to pin down what players are doing you know it, yeah. it's it's not like fo- it's not like a um, I almost said football is in, in like English football it's not yeah. like soccer or um, or basketball where everybody you know has the chance to to hold the ball and score or kick a goal and score um, you know your offensive linemen aren't going to score points uh, and so because of that, it's always been hard for people historically to enumerate the value of those players. Yeah. Um, it's difficult to enumerate the value of what would be called a quote unquote shutdown cornerback who is, is very effective at preventing the wide receiver that he's guard. He's um, he's covering from catching the ball. And perhaps because that cornerback is so good, he is targeted, you know, two thirds less than everybody else, or fifty yeah. percent less than everybody else in the season. So now he has less opportunities. But by the same token, the fact that the offense and the quarterback no longer look his way fifty percent of the time because they're concerned at how good he is, he's changing the game. Yet there's nothing in the box score that tells us that. There's nothing yeah. to enumerate that. He had. He didn't have a. You know. Didn't have exactly. Didn't have a pick six. He never even. Had exactly. The to go near the ball. But he the influenced that, the game. Yeah. He he created this situation yeah. where they are blinded to a third of the field. Yeah. Um, you know that's very different than like baseball, where you can you know numbers in baseball go hand in hand because you can enumerate everything. It's essentially a a individual sport within a, a team sport. It's it's a duel yeah. between a pitcher and a batter, and we've seen every single state in the game ever played out, you know, football is not like that. So we have some information from a third party that codes um, those aspects of the game that help us to provide more context around the things that are happening, not around the ball, which is really important because it is such a schematic game. Um, We also have information that will glean from the players on a daily basis around training. So um, your typical you know, wearable technologies, catapult, inertial sensors, GPS, those yeah. kinds of things. Yeah. Um, RPE, which I'm, I'm sure you're aware of as well, is, is a easy thing to collect. Um, 
you know, so we'll, we'll collect that kind of stuff on a daily basis that sort of informs the training process and the other stuff kind of informs the game process. And then anything else that we might feel valuable that we're not getting from that, um, sometimes we'll seek out web pages that we can, you know, scrape, write a web scraper to kind of corral that data and, and, and bring it into our, into our uh, system. Yeah. Do you, do you look to, I mean, what are, in my mind would be traditional data sources, like you said, so the Zebra technology tracking off the pads um, from the league, the, the Catapult, as you said, or other GPS um, tracking things in training, uh, and then the data providers, which will give you um, that, that depth of the whole game, as you said, and, and things not around the ball. Yeah. Um, are there other non-traditional sources that you might go to? You mentioned web scraping. Is there something else in that area that you can expand on? Uh, non-traditional, I mean, web scraping, there might be times when we'll manually notate our own games, I guess would be non-traditional in that most people want everything done for them. So there are times where, you know, a few of us will get into a position group room by ourselves and put on the tape with a notepad and start putting slashes in boxes and, and notating you know, aspects of the game ourselves. So, you know, that particularly happens when we're talking about draft and small school kids who yeah. who don't have any, you know, there's no information collected on those small schools. And, and so, but there might be kids that are prospects. So, um, yeah. So we certainly do, you, do, do you, that. Do you look to, um, say, uh, I don't know, gambling or, or wagering data? Like what, what the, the kind of work done by sports books? That's obviously something that's increasing in the US, not in the sense of um, you're going to place a bet on the game, but what they've put their own data source in for predictions around how a player or a team's going to perform. So whenever you collect data like this, data like this, um, you want to make sure it's in some way valid. And there's mm. lots of different types of validity. Um, you know, face validity could be just having a coach look at it and saying like, Hey, we collected some of this data on these players and we kind of ranked them. And what do you think? Like, are, is, does it smell right? Are the top 10 guys like the top there, you know, there, there probably shouldn't be too many like big surprises where a guy that yeah. nobody's ever heard of is already like ranked eighth. That might be weird. Maybe it's true. It's something that you then have to really interrogate your model and be like, wait, what, you know, what's going on here? Um, but you want to make sure that these things are valid. So I think one of the ways that you, you do, you can do that is to find a benchmark to compare your data and your models to. And the, uh, types of sources that you mentioned, I mean, historically, you know, something like the Vegas line, which basically leverages wisdom of the crowd. It's just the behavior of how people are putting money on one side or, uh, of the line or the other um, has done traditionally pretty well mm. at, at, um, uh, at picking these games. So as a benchmark, uh, those kinds of things are actually pretty valuable. Um, I do – Although, you know, maybe scouts and stuff would make fun of me. I do spend a lot of time actually looking at fantasy football um, analysis from the fact that 
you know, yes, it's it's not exactly like the game, and yes, these people are doing different things that, um, uh, you know, they're creating they create points in a different way than we would need to create points to win a game, right? Yeah. They, they care about yards and things like that, but. What I think is incredibly useful in what they do is that they in some way create models that place value on, on players. Yeah. Um, and so I think that there's something to be learned from that, um, if nothing else from the process of thinking. You know, I, I think sometimes – when you work in a sport, you get, you know, you kind of get the horse blinders on and you look at that sport from the lens of like, this is what, you know, this is what the sport is. This is what we do. And, and maybe that's like the route that I think a lot of kind of traditional sports science has been stuck in very like, this is, this is Australian football and this is how we look at it. And, yeah. you know, I tend to, um, you know, I was talking with a, a colleague of mine who we, we've done a bunch of research together. He's a sports scientist for Carlton FC in the Australian football league, which is a horrible team, but he's really good. And, um, uh, Tom, oh, they're, they're in, they're in the, eight. they're, they're, the they're moving oh, up. Yeah. They're moving up. They're moving finals, up. Yeah. yeah. They're getting yeah. better. They're my team. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm supportive. Um, nice. but, uh, yeah, Tom, Tom Kempton, you know, he's, he's the sports scientist there. You know, we talk a lot and we've done some uh, papers and stuff. And one of the things that we talk about is, you know, it's like every month or year I, I read less and less in the sports science literature and more and more, in other things like um, economics, behavioral economics, um, mm. environmental biology, where I think that like some of the stats are brilliant. And I think some of that stuff um, in, in doing that, you know, at the end of the day, it's not about the topic. It's about trying to figure out how people think. Yeah. So if I read a good book, like I just read Richard Thaler, who's a, a behavioral economist. I re- just read one of his books. And so the next thing I did was I went and downloaded a whole bunch of his research papers because I was like, okay, the book is kind of this nice, fun story about all the conclusions he's come to. But I really want to learn about how he thought about these things. Like how did he, yeah. how did he come up with the question? How did he put in place a methodology to answer that question? And in doing that, um, I learn his process. And learning someone else's process is the most valuable thing because it will sharpen your ability to do that thing in whatever realm you're studying. Yeah, the, the strength of analytical thinking and coming to it. With yeah. a, I mean, it's what we talked about earlier, coming to the sacred cows in the industry and going, why are these sacred cows? Let's actually inter- interrogate this with, with data and with scientific method. That's, that's right, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Carlton, Australian Rules Football, and um, I mean, any chance I get to talk about it, I will. So thank you very much. Yeah, uh, but let's go. That, that's something that's changing the game uh, in terms of um, uh, possessions. We call them disposals or touches yeah. is how many yeah. times a player touch physically touches the ball mm-hmm. and successfully gets rid of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was always the gold standard and it still is for a lot of viewers and fans. But then kind of diving behind that and you go, well, what about the negative side of it? You might have a midfielder that doesn't actually get that touches, but they're being tagged and they're dragging a player out um, and creating creating space. Yeah, yeah. So you look at the stat sheet and you go, wow, you know, they got no touches. They're terrible. Um, it's kind of that that quantifying the negative almost, um, the, the kind of lack of, well, well, what are they doing to impact the game? Where are they around the ball? Um, yeah. It's tough because those players might be really valuable, but nobody's going to the Hall of Fame for that. 
Because you're not no. the guy who, you know, you're not the guy who kicked it through the middle goalpost and, yeah. you know. <laughs> as, we, uh, as we say in Australia, you're not the guy that gets leather poisoning because yeah. you touch the, the football Ex- so much. Exactly. Um, but that, that's the evolution of the game and I think it, it, as much as it's going on, that's a whole different conversation about how broadcasters and people covering the game need to educate people and how data can be used for that. Uh, but you mentioned a little bit about um, kind of data validity and and... I was going to ask about that, but I, I kind of want to dive first into uh, some of the gathering of it. Like, what's the next wave of technology in data capture and analysis that you see coming through? Well, <clears throat> I think um, maybe harking back to what I said a little bit earlier at the outset, sometimes the goal in um, in the applied setting in, in industry isn't necessarily about always just doing this amazing analysis to find new things. Sometimes it's about making people's jobs easier. Mm. And if you think about um, scouting teams, uh, whether that's for opponent scouting or whether that's for new players, um, you know, probably in football, I mean, you kind of have a football is not as challenging because there's only one Super, you know, there's only one main league, similar to yeah. AFL. No, nobody plays these sports anywhere else. Like, yeah, this is it. And uh, I guess US, diff- U.S. and in North America, USA and, and Canada, you're not having to go to yeah Fiji or a, a, or something. Exactly, like it's, it's not like like or soccer. You know, like you could have great players in Premier League, Dutch League, German League, Spanish League. You know, South America, Italy, like yeah. you know. Spain, Portugal, like all these, you know, there's so many. And then academies, I mean, now you're talking about oodles and oodles of people that you'd have to trounce through to find value. Um, and, and, you know, so I think in football, like we, you know, we only have one top league. In college, there's different divisions. So obviously the, the highest division, the, the FBS, the football subdivision, is, is going to be your players that are probably closest to the NFL in terms of size and speed and skill set, then the FCS, and then and then there's you know Division two, II, Division three, junior colleges. Yeah. So there's there's quite a number of players to go through, and um, you know I think some of the stuff around uh, um, uh, computer computer vision type technologies and things like that may aid in these processes where it's just not feasible for to ask a, you know, a scout or a coach to watch you know, 15 games of 100 different kids. Yep. But it's totally doable to process that information in a, uh, in a computer way, right? In an algorithmic way. Yep. Um, and, and if nothing else, because I know that you know, people get scared about that stuff in terms of like, oh, it's um, – you know, how does it really know what we want and how do you know, if nothing else, you can use that as the first pass to sort of mm. say, hey, look, from these 10,000 kids, we found, um, you know, whatever, 300 or 400 that might be interesting to talk about. Now let's break that down a little bit further and maybe watch a little bit of that so, or, or, or study a little bit of that or, or them. So I think some of that technology will be incredibly useful, not only from scouting, but I, th- I think from the, um, uh, 
you know, from the game perspective in terms of similar to the example you gave of the mid, you know, pulling the guy out and creating space, um, that stuff's not going to make it on the stat sheet barring yeah. some, you know, some person who sits up in the press box and actually manually codes what everybody's doing. Um, but if you're going to have, again, like how many people do you, is it going to take to manually code all the games that go on on the weekend and through the academies, whereas if we get the tape, you know, you can process it and figure out what's happening um, at a more reasonable, in a, in a more reasonable time frame. I think that... And, and to be able to, yeah, I mean, the, the efficiencies that you're talking about there, you, you have a kid that could be in far out west texas and, and a scout might get out there might not um yeah to be able to give the at a high school level to be able to get the college opportunity to go on so it's like broadening the funnel of the talent pipeline um but yeah be able to do i, I mean at most, the college yeah. level it's amazing right because now you're you know you're in you're in austin so university of texas is fighting for recruits in, in yep. texas the kids are going to go to a and m you know kids that are going to go to maybe go out and play in california it, it, like they're, they're fighting for recruits. The better you're able to identify these, you know, some of these potential kids and snag them early or, um, um, or find like the diamonds in the rough, you know, I mean, every year you're talking about some kid who went to an FCS school or went to a smaller school, um, uh, FBS school, um, simply based on the fact that like, Bigger schools kind of knew about him, but maybe he was a little smaller. He didn't yeah. develop fast. You know, he didn't develop as much in high school or something like, you know, there's something wrong with him. But he goes to this FCS school and absolutely obliterates the competition. And then next thing you know, he's, he's an, you know, an NFL superstar. Um, you know, that happens. And, and so, the, the, you know, if you're, if you're on the recruiting committee at one of the big colleges, um, I mean, I can't see, how you wouldn't want to, pro I mean, there's so many high school, there's so much high school football in this country to process yeah. all that stuff as a human would be just daunting. Like you couldn't do it. That's why people yeah. get missed. They drop through the cracks. Yes, definitely. And also the efficiency of it. If you are yeah. just stretched so thin watching 15 games back to back. Yeah. Um, by the time it comes to the 15th game, yeah. you're probably not going to be as sharp as you should be. Yeah. How much um, are you really studying a player at that yeah. point once you're exhausted, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Which is interesting you're talking about that that whole point about the human fallibility, um, yep. but also that solutions like this aren't silver bullets because they do miss things. As you said, it's a balance between the two. It's it's a balance in saying, well, the, yeah, the, no, it, the like, data coding says this is a top 10, uh, take it to a coach, give it a sniff test, and then maybe to totally. a chance to go back and, and go over it a bit closer. You, you, need, you need both. I think, I, I mean, I'm not saying that these types of things are infallible in any way. Other types of error get creeped in. You know, uh, yeah. you gave the example of, uh, you know, a human being getting tired. And maybe the human being has bias. Like they just don't like the kid personally. And so they grade, yeah. grade him hard. You know, the, those are errors, right? And, and these types of systems also have errors. If the camera's not in a great position, if the video is grainy, if the model's not, cal you know, not um, uh, parameterized well, it, you know, there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of steps along the way um, that can challenge uh, the, the, you know, the accuracy of these things. So you need both. The way that I always um, describe it is, you know, if the, if the rear view mirror, you know, if you're going to change lanes on the highway, that rear view mirror might be like your first check. And for like the coach 
that's probably like in his head what he believes a great you know running back or wide receiver or quarterback or you know linebacker what they look like when they move on the field look at how this guy hits people and runs and blocks and you know defends the path all that stuff um but i always say like if, if you have that and you have the other information that's just your side view mirror and so if yeah. those two things agree you probably feel pretty comfortable changing lanes but if they don't agree it doesn't mean that you can't change lanes Maybe you wouldn't on the you know six lane highway in Texas, but it, you may, you well, know. Well, to to use your analogy, you do a head check. You'd actually physically look around. Exactly. Which is the going back. I, I just need to gather a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Just let me gather a little more information to make sure that everything you know that what I think it, you know that we're going to go with my my instinct here. Yeah. And so, sometimes yeah. you might. You know, the side view mirror might be like, no way, don't change lanes. And you're like, oh, wow, I, I totally missed these other four things. You're right. That does kind of concern me about this, you know. So um, you, you need both. Like it's, it's never going to be uh, one thing or the other. Yeah, it's always yeah definitely. And kind of second last question about data validity. And that's coming back to what you talked about earlier and having all these different um, pieces of information that you come in. Um, how do you ensure data validity? Is it is it they agree, agree with each other, or is it one of those things that each different data source has its own um, nuances, so it needs to be assessed in different ways? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on what um, it depends on what you're collecting uh, in terms of validity, and, and what you mean by validity or even reliability in, in some senses. That's probably more important, especially if we're talking about like. You know, physical, biological type of data. Um, you know, validity, like we talked about earlier, could be benchmarking against a public model. Um, it could be benchmarking against, you know, like, let's say uh, coaches grade players a certain way. Um, well, my model hopefully has some level of agreement with them. Yeah. I don't think it, it shouldn't be perfect. Um, because they're looking at two different things. And, and like we talked about earlier, they have their own biases and, and errors and, and, and variability between them. So it's never going to be perfect. But they should have some level of agreement. Um, if we're talking about training type of data, um, you know, reliability is very important. And we do our own in-house reliability type of studies and, and work. So if we have a technology that we might be interested in, you know, Kind of my first pass is I use it on myself and just say like, okay, yeah. well, if I put it on myself and I, I start pulling data from my own workouts, um, how does it look? Like what, you know, what can I learn from this? What does it tell me? What does it tell me over time? Um, if, if I think that, oh, this is kind of interesting, I might recruit, you know, some of the guys from the, the uh, athletic training staff or strength room and, and do like a, a short little test, retest reliability study. Like what kind of error are we dealing with, right? Um, and then if we like that, we might slap it on some players, um, you know, maybe some, some practice squad guys who are going to be practicing a lot. So we'll be able to, to glean a lot of data from it or some guys that are returning back to, you know, uh, play from injury, like towards that end stage rehab when they're starting to actually run and stuff, because again, we're going to get, um, a lot of data on that. Yeah. Um, we might start looking at it, uh, uh there. And then I, I think, you know, if it, if it has good signal to noise, if, it tell, if we think we, it can tell us something, the validity piece to that is more around 
is it sensitive to other things? You know, like daily wellness is a good example, right? Like when players come in, people have them do the little wellness questionnaires in the morning. We bin those because I had looked at, you know, several years of our data collection on it. And I was like, this isn't sensitive. Like if a player has a really hard workout the day before, nothing changes the way that he answers the next morning. Yeah. If I look at, you know, the rolling training from the past four days, five days, 10 days, none of it influences how he answers. You know, there's nothing there. So from a sensitivity standpoint, it's not telling me anything, right? It's not moving. If it's not, you know, variability makes models go. And so yeah. if there's no variability, if, if someone puts a seven every time, it, then it has no information to tell me. There's nothing for yeah. it, you know. There's nothing for it. To, it just says that the guy gives a seven every time, it, yeah. it, and it's it, not influenced it, by anything else. Yeah, it gives it two. It just means they're not a morning person, right? Yeah. Exactly. Like it doesn't doesn't tell you anything beyond that. Exactly. Yeah. So we want to make sure that those types of measures are in some way sensitive to something that, um, you know, that is meaningful. RPE is sensitive to different measures of training context, the way that we train, the way the practices run, those kinds of things. And so we have a model that would account for that and, and make a forecast on what we think that the player would normally um, uh, assign his RP value to for that session. Uh, and then that allows us to look at what he actually, you know, so you have a, a forecast and you have a, a, an observed value and it allows you to compare the delta and see like, well, how far off are we? And yeah. whoa, like, why are we so far off? And why are we so far off? You know, three out of the past five training sessions, this is probably an issue. Like something's going on here that's yeah. outside of normal for this individual that um, warrants further explanation. It might not initially right away warrant a change in training but it, it initially it, but it does it, it warrants the beginning of a conversation around like wait what do we think is going on here why could this be what explains this maybe wife just had a baby and he's not sleeping very much you know um we want to just make sure we, we gather all the info you know again checking the side view mirror there yeah right and then we'll look around and do the head check and then decide if we're going to change lanes, which would be go to the coach and say like, Hey, you know, we've, we've noticed this with player X. We think this is a, an issue. We'd like to address it via, um, some sort of change to his training program over the next several days to see how it fixes it. Yeah. And then the, yeah. R, you know, the RPE we, we found has been sensitive to those kinds of changes. So when they, when we make a change, things change. And then that's, you know, um, and that's the value of it. That's the, the, I guess you would call it quote unquote validity piece. It's the sensitivity of it. That's important. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time uh, today, Patrick. It's covered a lot of ground in that and um, interesting to, to hear the, I guess the human approach to, to data in the sense that it is a, it's a tool that supports um, decision-making. Um, it is not the decision-maker in, in and of itself, um, which is, always good to hear um i think sometimes people just want analytics and technology to basically <laughs> just just spit out an answer for them rather than understanding that they're tools um yeah. and this, their success or otherwise um is dependent on how you use them as tools so that's always good to hear and final question for you what is your favorite sporting moment of all time oh wow favorite sporting moment of all time yeah 
Um, I mean, I guess, you know, growing up in Cleveland, I, I'd have to say, you know, we've been tortured fans. And, and I guess I, I could say LeBron James coming back to Cleveland and winning a championship was pretty cool. But I, I think the greatest ever was the, uh, the 95 Cleveland Indians. They went to the World Series. They lost to the Braves. Um, I think they got swept, actually. It was the only – I mean, that was an amazing Braves team. It was the only time that Bobby Cox won the World Series with that team who had gone to the World Series several times. But I think what was amazing about them was they broke a record for the number of comeback wins in the ninth inning. And yeah. so that season was just like every game. You never wanted to turn it off because something was going to happen. It was like goosebumps in the ninth inning. And so I think yeah. even though they didn't win the World Series, it was it, as a kid, you know, in 95, I was, what, a sophomore in high school, I think. Yeah. yeah, sophomore in high school. In 95, it was like just I think that was like the most amazing thing ever. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll see if I can find some footage of um, some of those um – Snatching victory out of the jaws of defeat um, for a few of those uh, <laughs> Cleveland games, if I can, so people can really love that. Also, um, I can find a link to the Richard um, Thaler book that you mentioned. At the um, yeah, that. Misbehaving was the one that I just read. Misbehaving, yep. yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll put a link to that as well. Um, and thank you so much for your time, Patrick. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks. There you have it. That was Patrick Ward, Director of Research and Development at the Seattle Seahawks, talking about a creative approach to data insights, amongst many other topics. I uh, really love his unique take on, on the industry and, and looking further afield for data sources, for ways of thinking. Um, as he said and, and kind of called out in the quote at the beginning, at the end of the day, it's not about the topic. It's about trying to figure out how people think. So that's the key takeaway that I really want you to grab from this episode. If you are working within data analytics or looking to work within that industry or working with people in that industry, if you're kind of working adjacent to the performance world um, and understanding how people in, in highly technical roles can best help you, really it's about asking those smart questions but also challenging assumptions uh, and challenging norms. As I mentioned at the beginning, sportstechfeed.com for show notes. And if you want to sign up to our newsletter, sportstechworldseries.com, down the bottom there, sign up and you will get each episode of the podcast in your inbox each Thursday in addition to some fantastic articles about what's happening in the industry and some deep dives around learning and development. I've been your host, Thomas Lones. Pleasure as always. Looking forward to seeing you next week. (laughs) 